welcome to the Norfolk Heritage Centre podcast. This week we hear from Ian Smith as he considers civic pride and the reality of urban life in Georgia Norwich. Before I start, can you hear me at the back? Yes. Good. Um, Another thing, before I actually start this talk, I should explain it's part of a series of talks that I've been researching and giving over the last two or three years on the subject of Georgian Norwich at places like the Heritage Open Days, the Norwich Society, and here in the Heritage Centre. The overall title is Georgian Norwich in Context, which means I don't only talk about what's happening in Norwich in this very, very important period, but I try and put it a bit in the context of what is happening in the rest of the country. This talk is actually a revised version of the introductory talk of my series, which I originally gave at the Heritage Open Days in 2016, but I've, um, but I've revised it and changed it quite a bit in the course of the last year or so. I will aim to talk for about 50 minutes and if you've got any questions uh, that that will leave time for you to put them. So what did the Georgians do for Norwich? Let's just see the Georgian era lasted from 1714 to 1830. Some people add on William IV as another Uh, which brings it up to 1832 and of course it's interrupted by the Regency period. In many ways during this period Britain was transformed. Its legacy still shapes our social, political and physical environment. Three centuries later some parts of the Georgian heritage are well on their way to unravelling you might say. Britain's status as a world power, Uh, its deep involvement in European affairs, the forging of a national identity which occurred then based on the Protestant religion, and even the union of Scots and English are being brought into question. But one inheritance of the Georgian era remains, the progressive urbanisation of Britain which is still incomplete in our day. During the Georgian era, the population uh, more than doubled, and the population of towns accounted for most of this growth. As the Industrial Revolution got underway, people increasingly flocked to the towns and cities in search of a better life. Towns took great pride in their growing prosperity and their distinct identities. But some saw this urbanisation as a mixed blessing. Many of the growing towns lacked the necessary infrastructure. They became overcrowded. The poor lived in in sanitary hovels and took to strong drink for relief. What a contrast between Britannia and this woman in in Hogarth's famous uh, engraving of Gin Alley. But nonetheless, the Georgians did make efforts to remedy matters. Charity 
and philanthropy alleviated <coughs> the condition of the poor and urban infrastructure was in upgraded by what they call the spirit of improvement. My talk then will start at looking at how Norwich compared with other large English towns in the Georgian era. I'll then go on to consider three things. First of all, its pride, its pride in its prosperity driven by the textile industry, in its pleasant environment, and its historic origins and ancient charter. And then I will go on to look at what I call urban reality. Um, on the fragility of the, of the industry on which this prosperity was based. On the plight of the poor in Norwich, in the, in the workhouses and elsewhere. Of the congested streets, contaminated water supply, frequent flooding. And of its corrupt administration it has to present. <coughs> then finally, I will look at um, its efforts to improve matters. I, for example, by finding charities to help the poor and by some admittedly very incomplete efforts to update its streets and urban infrastructure. But first of all, where exactly did Norwich fit in? <coughs> it certainly was the second most populous city in England, at least up to the time of George I and probably for 20, 30, 40 years after that. Nobody's got exact figures. But the population figures changed dramatically in the Georgian era. First of all, the gap between London, obviously the first city, and Norwich grew. London went from about half a million to, to <coughs> one million in 1801. But more significantly, Norwich was overtaken first of all by the big port cities like Bristol and Liverpool which benefited above all from the growing slave trade and also even more importantly by the new manufacturing towns like Birmingham, Manchester, Salford, Leeds and Sheffield. In the second half of the 18th century Sheffield's population grew by no, no fewer than four times. Nevertheless, despite this relative decline, Norwich also grew, albeit intermittently from 30,000 in 1700 to say 36,000 in 801. And, it, it, uh, and finally at the end of the Georgian era, 61,000. In other words, it, di it did double its population during this time. Despite its relative decline in population, Norwich textile industry was still very much a force to be reckoned with. It had been described in the previous century, in the 17th century, in Macaulay's History of England as the chief seat of the chief manufacturer of the realm. It drew on a centuries-long tradition of enterprise and innovation going back to the strangers two centuries earlier. You remember these were refugees who came from the Low Countries. In the 18th century, worldwide trade boosted demand for all sorts of manufactured goods, 
small metal goods from Birmingham called toys, Sheffield cutlery, Stoke pottery, and of course Norwich textiles, which were no exception. Merchants began to exploit the export market from Norwich by sending their goods direct via Yarmouth <coughs> rather than uh, via London. Norwich pattern cards circulated from the north of Russia to the south of Spain and Norwich textiles were sold as far away as South America and Asia. As a result, the city experienced a sort of golden age, between, particularly between 1730 and 1770. But there's no more to it than that. Unlike Birmingham, Sheffield and all those, Norwich was much more than a manufacturing centre. It was also a historic city governed by an ancient charter, a regional capital to which people flocked for a variety of professional and retail services, the seat of a bishopric with a magnificent <coughs> cathedral and the centre of a rich agricultural region. So let's first of all talk about civic pride. Norwich had plenty to be proud of. Among other people, some of you will have heard of the diarist, um, Parson <coughs> Woodford, who took up his post in Western Longville. He says on his first visit to Norwich on the 14th of April 1775, we breakfasted, dined, supped and slept at Norwich. We took a walk over the city in the morning and we both agreed it was the finest city in England by far. And you've, of course, got plenty of other similar references like George Borough, the, the, the fine city and so on. In common with other towns, Norwich expressed this civic pride in a variety of printed forms, in history books, guidebooks, city directories and maps. The main theme of them was the prosperity and opulence enjoyed by its wealthy elite, particularly in this golden age. <coughs> There were the early Georgian town histories of Norwich. The 1728 one talked of the trade and opulency of this populous city where the manufacturers had acquired, quote, prodigious wealth. The 1738 history said it was a fair, large and rich city of England. Then guidebooks started to appear from about <coughs> the 1770s onwards. They were known as tours. Richard Beatniff's Norfolk Tour of 1775, the first guidebook of this area, went through six editions. It described the wealth, beauty, extent, populousness of Norwich. Then Chambers' guidebook tour of 1829 said it was distinguished in the commercial annals of Great Britain for its manufacturers. Then there were the city directories, which listed all the tradespeople and so on in the city. Norwich was one of the very first towns to publish one in 1783. In the introduction, it described itself as abounding in op opulence and fashion, followed by another directory in 1802. By then, we have to say the decline had set in, but Norwich was still said to enjoy, quote, advantages superior 
to most cities in the kingdom. Then there were maps. Crossfield's map of 1727 displays not only churches around the edge, but also the homes of the wealthy. According to one later source, they were fitted up in a style which is seldom seen but in the houses of our first nobility. King's map of 1766 featured new public buildings constructed in the 1750s, the assembly rooms where ladies, quote, profuse in jewellery, attended balls and tempted to marry off their daughters, the theatre royal where audiences were treated to, to, to shows transferred from London, and the Octagon Chapel where non-conformist elite worshipped, described by John Wesley as perhaps the most elegant meeting house of all Europe. And you see these on the bottom right of the map just above the cathedral. Opulence was also on display in the city streets. Gentlemen's walk cleared of encumbrances to provide a quote space of parade-like appearance a space of parade-like appearance lined with fashionable taverns, coffee houses and shops. A scene, quote, of bustle and business, health and wealth, prosperity and pleasure. Plowed, proud, let me call it, as the true criterion of provincial and national glory. Then there were the, the pleasure gardens established in imitation of the famous Vauxhall Gardens in London where, quote, gentlemen and ladies may regale themselves with excellent made wines, choice cider, fine home-brewed ale and cakes. But that wasn't the only source of pride for Norwich. It was also very proud of its pleasant environment. Its spaciousness had been noted by the writer Daniel Defoe on his tour of Eastern England in the 1720s. Quote, the walls seemed placed as if they expected the city would in time increase sufficiently to fill them with buildings. This spaciousness allowed room for gardens and orchards. Uh, to go back to the town history of 1728 again. Quote, the houses are in all parts of the city intermixed with flowery, fragrant, fruitful and delicious <coughs> gardens and orchards, which afford a most agreeable prospect from the adjacent hills, where you may behold the lively verdure of the trees, giving a delectable shade to the houses and making the whole appear like a city in a grove or a grove in a city, a, a, a phrase which became very popular at the time or the 1738 history, you may sit on a bank of flowers, view the verdant trees displaying the banners of Eden to shade the houses, while the ravished eye is doubtful whether it be a city in a grove or a grove in a city. And everybody wrote um, referred to this phrase. And then the good air quality was widely noted, particularly important in Georgian times because it was thought that disease was transmitted um, through the air um, and this was largely due, due to the relatively unmechanised state of the textile industry and it was then relatively smoke free at least compared with the <coughs> other manufacturing towns like Sheffield and Birmingham where respectable citizens 
hadn't been, been obliged by air pollution to abandon the city centre. The 1738 history again, quote, the air is healthy and pregnant with the richest perfumes from nature's alembic. In case you don't know what an alembic is, it's apparently an apparatus used in distilling perfume. Then the pleasant environment was also enhanced by the abundance of food available in the market. According to one writer in 1737, was by far the biggest, and if I should add, the best stored with provisions of all kinds of any in the kingdom. In this market you may be plentifully served with turkeys, chickens, ducks, pigs, rabbits, eggs, butter, cheese, fruit of all sorts in their season, and all manner of herbage. Too bad if you don't like your greens. Likewise, great quantities of all kinds of corn and other grain. According to the same writer, the proximity of the countryside also enhanced the quality of life. Quote, in one respect, we are much happier than Londoners, for we can take our horses and ride two or three miles out of the city for an airing of the afternoon. Many gentlemen divert themselves with fishing and sometimes fowling. Neither need they go a great way from the city for game. <coughs> then Norwich was also inordinately proud of its historic origins. Early Georgian histories were based on hearsay. The anonymous author of the 1728 history thought that the castle was started by Gurguntus, king of Britain, and that, and that, quote, Julius Caesar in his time found it a strong, beautiful, and commodious place and caused several buildings to be erected thereabouts. Absolute nonsense, of course. Um, but more serious study of history was already underway, based on documentary research and the recording of historic buildings and inscriptions. In 1729, the Reverend Francis Bloomfield <coughs> started work on his monumental multi-volume, quote, essay towards a topographical history of the county of Norfolk, two volumes of which were devoted to Norwich. It was widely recognized as creating the foundation of local history in Norwich. Pride in history also went along with pride in its municipal government. Unlike these other manufacturing towns like Manchester, Birmingham, Sheffield, which were still governed like overgrown villages, Norwich boasted a succession of royal charters going back four centuries, which established its independent status as a city and a county in itself. Guild Day in midsummer was where this status was celebrated above all. When the new mayor was inaugurated, it was a major civic event. The long procession from the Guild Hall to the Cathedral was led by the dragon attended by four whifflers with swords, two beetles, music, and the city standard, etc., etc. On their way back from the Cathedral to the Guild Hall, after a service and a sermon, the procession stopped at the free school, now known as Norwich School, where one of the pupils addressed them with a Latin oration. Also in the Georgian era, 
the incoming mayor with help from corporation funds, it has to be said, <coughs> traditionally offered a grand feast. In 1800, for example, 80, 800 came to the feast in St Andrew's Hall and 450 attended a, a ball in the Assembly House. Civic ceremonial was enhanced by costumes and regalia. <coughs> a detailed um, table published in 1729 set out exactly what habits the right worshipful Mr Mayor and other officials were to wear upon all festive days starting with Christmas and other meetings. The, the colours of the habits varied from scarlet, violet to black. Some of this ceremonial, of course, still survives today, but with a somewhat more carnival atmosphere in the annual Lord Mayor's procession. And of course, the historic regalia, including a mace presented at this time in 1734 by Sir Robert Walpole, is still in use. So now we pass from civic pride to urban reality. Norwich citizens in the Georgian era, it might seem, were living in a sort of earthly paradise from what we've heard so far. Proud of their history, living in a benign, beautiful environment, blessed with wealth and opulence. But urban reality didn't always correspond with civic pride. For one thing, wealth and opulence were never totally secure. The textile industry, and hence the prosperity of the city, was always at the mercy of outside circumstances. The growth of trade, what we now call, I suppose, globalisation in the first half of the 18th century, on which this prosperity depended, was a mixed blessing, could also be a source of instability. At the very beginning of the Georgian era, there was a lot of com uh, competition from imports. Brightly coloured cotton cloth, known as calico, was imported by the East India Company. It was undercutting English woolen and silk materials by much as five times in price, as well as appealing to the growing taste for fashion and bright colours. Demand for Norwich textiles for a time collapsed, leading to unemployment and distress. The weavers, as they often did, responded by rioting, the rabble cutting several gowns and pieces on women's backs, entering shops to seize all calicos found there, and beating the constables that endeavoured to apprehend them. But the crisis was eventually overcome by some protectionist legislation in the 1720s. Even the subsequent export drive from which Norwich textiles later benefited was not without its risks. Even in times of peace, merchants sometimes overreached themselves. Recovery of debts in remote foreign countries was never easy. Stannard and Taylor, one of the leading textile firms, for example, was declared bankrupt in 1769. It had engaged in unsuccessful speculative trading as far afield as Buenos Aires, Lima and Veracruz. One Spanish <coughs> customer, who presumably himself went bankrupt, offered to pay in oranges. <laughs> then there were the impact 
of wars, particularly with France, which punctuated this period of our history. The wars with revolutionary France from 1793, their impact was particularly severe. William Wyndham, one of the city's MPs who strongly supported the war, became an object of hate among the weavers. At the by-election of July 1794, following his appointment as war minister, his supporters set up in the marketplace a loom hung with black cloth and empty shuttles and drew attention to the unrelievedly bleak picture of, quote, numberless objects of distress with which our streets are crowded, those creatures of silent and quiet <coughs> sufferance. So at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, 1815, uh, it did bring a temporary boom in the textile industry. But there were long-term factors which were coming into play. Despite the high-quality shawls which Norwich specialised in, the <coughs> it was being overtaken by the more easily mechanised west-riding worsted and longship cotton. Manufacturers in Norwich tried to reduce the wages of their workforce, of their weavers, to compensate. But the end of the Georgian era was particularly difficult. In 1829, two firms were declared bankrupt. Um, they faced violence, dragoons were called out. Mr. Wright, the largest manufacturer in the city, had vitriol thrown in his face, from which he lost the sight of an eye. Of course, it was the poor who suffered most at times of economic crisis. The workhouses presented the most dramatic flip side of wealth and opulence. Both the main Norwich workhouses, almost next door to each other, occupied ancient buildings unsuited to their purposes. St Andrew's Hall and the former palace of the Duke of Norfolk, now a multi-storey car park. Um, an average of 1,282 paupers were accommodated in the workhouses between 1784 and 1801. At one time in 1800, this is during the depression caused by the Napoleonic or the French wars, <coughs> the numbers reached 2017 about one in 20 of the situation of the city's population. <laughs> At the end of the Georgian era, the local press was still graphically describing the workhouses quote, as, quote, a scene of filth, wretchedness and indecency, in which paupers gnawed food from their hands, bedding was verminous and inmates were mixed together indiscriminately. But even the workhouses couldn't cope at times of extreme shortage. Um, at least if you're in the workhouse, you've got something to eat. But in times of bad harvest, when grain prices rose beyond the reach of the poor, near famine conditions were created. The food riots, for example, directed against the millers suspected of profiteering punctuated the Georgian era in 1766. Miller's houses were attacked. Eight rioters were sentenced to death and two 
executed. Then the environment. Despite the, the <coughs> pride in pleasant environment, Norwich, like other uh, Georgian cities, suffered from certain environmental and sanitary problems, which some of which are familiar today, some of which, thank <coughs> God, are not. Traffic problems. If you took your carriage into the market area to do some shopping or drink coffee with friends, you would soon become aware that traffic congestion in the crooked and narrow medieval streets. The Norwich Directory of 1783 complained that the vital road linking the market to London Lane, now, now known as London Street, of course, <coughs> was, quote, so narrow and irregular that frequent interruptions and sometimes accidents happen by carriages meeting. Worse, if you went on shopping or to, to have a coffee on foot, quote, persons on foot must squeeze themselves into a dark alley or burst into a shop to avoid being run over or crushed against the walls, whilst in wet weather you are drenched by torrents of water from the houses or plunged into a gutter knee-deep. Once you did get to the, the, the centre of the fashionable city at <coughs> Gentleman's Walk, you had to take care that you were not run over by a market cart. You might even, <coughs> you might even become aware that this fashionable promenade was, was <coughs> frequented not only by fashionable people, but also by what the, court, the press called those wretched and disgraceful females with which this city too much abounds. In <coughs> the problem seems to have been particularly acute in the late 1790s when many soldiers were stationed in the city. In 1799, however, the mayor, John Herring, and his fellow justices successfully cleared gentlemen's walk, but only to find, it seems, that the said disgraceful females had decamped to a nearby passageway. The passageway was ironically called Ladies Lane and was closed off entirely in order to prevent quote, <coughs> corruption and depravity. But it was not only moral <coughs> pollution. Despite a limited supply of water provided by new mills, water pollution was also a major problem. Many <coughs> poor still relied on contaminated wells. Richard Arderon, who managed the waterworks at New Mills from about 1720, criticised the quote, the too frequent practice in Norwich of turning their old wells into bog houses. This undoubtedly mixes with waters that supply other wells and makes them vastly unwholesome as well as intolerably disagreeable, to put it mildly. The River Wensum was an alternative <coughs> water supply, much used for washing clothes and bathing, but heavily polluted by sewage and the effluent of the dyeing industry. Numerous deaths from drowning are recorded in the, church, in the coroner's inquest of the day. It was also very much prone to flooding. At least six very serious floods occurred during the Georgian period. In October 1762, for example, it, quote, 
entirely overflowed the lower parts of the city and lay underwater between two and three thousand houses with eight parish churches. Even the burying of corpses in already overcrowded churchyards was another source of infection and disease. Body parts were washed to the surface in stormy weather. The 1783 directory said that the <coughs> overcrowded graveyards were, quote, not only inconvenient and displeasing, but had often been the cause of pestiferous disorders. The putrid state of certain diseases and natural decay of bodies contribute to an infection by air and humidity that operates, though imperceptibly, on, <coughs> on the lungs. So much for the lovely um, perfume of the flowers which uh, others were writing about at the time. <coughs> then even the city's pride in its historic origins had its flip side. Historic buildings and other remnants of the city's medieval past were not always cherished as much as you might expect and as we now cherish them today. <coughs> the walls, one of the defining features of the city, were allowed to collapse, mm. damaging adjacent buildings in 1768 and 1770. They were increasingly seen, not surprisingly, as a health and safety hazard and as an imp impediment to the free circulation of air, so important to the Georgians. The process speeded up in the 1790s when considerable openings in the walls were deliberately made, one between Burr Street and the Brazen Doors and the other close to Chapelfield. Eight city gates were also demolished in the 1790s and by 1819 <coughs> all the remaining gates had been levelled. What a pity, weren't they so picturesque? Actually some conservationists did object at the time but their representations were brushed aside. The quote, these additional avenues, wrote Beatniff in his Norfolk tour, have undoubtedly their use, and to gentlemen disposed to venerate whatever is antique, <coughs> let it be hinted that, however obnoxious to their feelings, modern improvement may be nothing, may be nothing on earth is calculated to stand forever. Then there was the Market Cross, another defining feature of the medieval city, which was dispensed with entirely. The fine Gothic carving was evidently not to everybody's taste, and anyway, it blocked Gentleman's Walk, an important thoroughfare. Some workmen reported that it was in danger of collapsing and induced the corporation to give, give it to anyone who took the pains to take it down but they made a, quote, pretty deal of money. As it turned out, it contained more lead than originally computed, and that was apparently a very valuable, uh, a very valuable um, commodity. Then the, the apparent harmony expressed in the medieval pageantry, municipal pageantry, which we've just been looking at, also had an underside. In, in damaging political conflict and widespread corruption. Even well before the Georgian era, 
Norwich had a nationwide reputation for political strife, evident in both parliamentary and local politics. Competition for municipal office was driven by patronage over positions as diverse as entry to the great hospital or appointment of constables. Municipal business was frequently disrupted. Rioting and disorder frequently accompanied annual elections for the mayor, the sheriffs and what was known as the common council. In 1722 became so bad that citizens appealed to the central government for protection, the Secretary of State warned the Mayor that he would face legal action if he didn't maintain the peace. And there were some weird practices which grew up um, all through the Georgian era. In 1720 the Whigs captured the Ultramanic bench by arresting citizens who had debts and keeping them in jail. On election day they were allowed to go home once they had voted for the designated candidate. But as the jail straddled the two, a boundary between two wards, the bailiff could move the prisoners from one side of the jail to the other so that they record two votes in the prescribed manner. Then later on in the Georgian era, there were the strange uh, practices of treating and cooping. Treating meant that voters were treated with food and drink at specially designated taverns. Um, they were also bribed with beer and tobacco and by more substantial bribes <coughs> of £10 or more. Then there was cooping. This was a, a term used for the shutting when voters were kidnapped, sometimes violently, to ensure that they voted for a party or to prevent them voting for the opposing party. The shocking <coughs> extent of these practices was finally revealed when the government's municipal corporation commissioners came to Norwich and took detailed evidence in the Guildhall in 1833. This gave some upright local citizens a chance to speak out. <coughs> a leading Quaker, J.J. Gurney, one single ward election does more harm than all the preaching and all the churches and all the meeting houses in the whole year does good. A manufacturer, the municipal elections take men from their work. It's impossible to get any work done for nearly six weeks. Or the editor of the Norwich Mercury, the prosperity of the town as well as private intercourse are all poisoned by the party spirit endangered, in, engendered by these elections. But the corporation wasn't going to give up easily. It fought back, <coughs> insisted, insisting on its rights in its ancient charter. It insisted that the government, the commissioner's inquiry was a, a, a contravention of their rights. <coughs> Quote, an assumption of power contrary to law and an exception, exercise of prerogative totally at variance <coughs> with those constitutional principles, blah, 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 blah. But the commissioner's report, the commissioner's uh, evidence was eventually set out in a report which contained incontestable evidence of the bribery and corruption which had inflicted local government in the later Georgian era. The corporation tried unsuccessfully to rally the support of other boroughs, but they failed in a last ditch appeal to the House of Lords. 
Then came the Municipal Corporations Act of 1833, which led to a wholesale reform of local government, not only in Norwich, but also in the rest of the country. <coughs> so now we come to efforts to improve matters. To be fair, the better off citizens of Norwich didn't ignore the squalor <coughs> which um, the squalor and poverty that existed alongside the wealth and opulence of which they were so proud. <coughs> Many wealthy citizens, including the influential Quakers, developed a strong social conscience, which wasn't <coughs> taken for granted in those days. <coughs> in uh, looking at Louisa Gurney's diary in the, uh, in the um, record office the other day, I came across a touching <coughs> evidence of this. <coughs> Louisa Gurney was a teenage um, <coughs> daughter of the famous um, Gurney family. Um, in, the, in this extract, she compares her comfortable life in Earlham Hall, now of course the uh, law school of the UEA, with a lot of, quote, thousands with scarcely a sh shed to shelter. The spirit, what you would call the spirit of philanthropy was reflected in many ways for example in uh, response to ad hoc subscriptions launched at the time to launched at times of food shortages or harsh winters in the particularly in the exceptionally harsh winters of the 1790s and again in 18, 1813 or 1814 when food prices rose by up to 50%. They were also um, supplemented <coughs> by the distribution of soup, food, coal and cast-off clothing. But philanthropy, philanthropy also took a more permanent form. Perhaps the best example is the Norfolk Norwich Hospital, still with us today, of course, but on a different site opened in 1771 as a result of subscription opened by William Fellows of Shotson. It was supported by many fundraising events such as sermons and concerts. An annual concert in the cathedral usually raised about 150-160 pounds, a huge sum of money in those days. Paupers were admitted to the hospital as long as they were supported by their parish and its medical achievements <coughs> were impressive in an age before anaesthetics or antiseptic. Operations for the stone attracted widespread admiration. Even Parson Woodford went there to, to, to witness one. Um, <clears throat> and there were 541 operations performed by 1819 with only 74 fatalities. But even before that, there was the Bethel Hospital, constructed on the base basis of a gift <coughs> in 1713 from Mary Chapman, the wife of a local parson. She had been horrified by the <coughs> treatment meted out at existing mental institutions in which inmates were dehumanised and incarcerated. She subsequently supported it in her will for the quotes convenient reception and habitation of poor lunatics defined as those afflicted with <coughs> lunacy or madness, uh, not such as our fools 
or idiots from their birth. I don't know why that would you say that. The plaque on the wall in the building, of course, which still stands, insists that the building was built for the benefit of distressed lunatics and not to be alienated or employed for any other purpose whatsoever. Oh, sorry, I've missed out a slide. Yeah, here we are. Uh, I don't even read the plaque that says that. And of course it now is um, a, a series of luxury flats, but never mind. <coughs> Many other similar charitable institutions were founded in the early 19th century. The work of the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital was supplemented by the Norwich Dispensary to furnish medicine and advice to such indigent persons as are not able otherwise to procure them. The Institution for the Indigent Blind, founded in 1805 in Magdalen Street, served both as a hospital for the aged blind and a school for blind children to learn <coughs> basket making and other skills. And a new lunatic asylum was opened in 1814 in Thorpe to supplement the Bethel Hospital founded by Mary Chapman. One observer commented that the stranger is agreeably surprised at the moderate use of coercive measures, yet the order and comfort he observes is not exceeded in any institution of this kind. And there were many other non-residential voluntary bodies founded at about this time, the Benevolent Association for the Re Relief of Decayed Tradesmen, their widows and orphans, etc., etc. Interestingly, one called the Society of Universal Goodwill for the Relief of Foreigners Without Settlement in England and Not Entitled to Parish Relief. So <coughs> we now go on to what was called the Spirit of Improvement. And this was <coughs> not only about, uh, was not so much about tackling poverty and squalor but also improving the built environment and the urban in infrastructure of the city. <coughs> the Georgians certainly put up some fine domestic buildings <coughs> in Norwich, some built from scratch, some refronted in the new style, and they changed the appearance of certain parts of the city. Some, some still survive, not always in the best of uh, repair, in Surrey Street, All Saints Green, St. Giles, <coughs> and on the north side, the River Colgate and Magdalene Street, and you'll be familiar with all of these. Towards the end of the Ge Georgian era, there was another um, <coughs> development, which was the extension, the suburbanisation, the extension of the city outside the walls. Quote, a rapid increase of dwellings on the roads adjacent to the city, it was said. They are built in humble imitation of those countless erections which astonished the stranger on his approach to the metropolis of England. By 1831, at the end of the Georgian era, over 22% of the city population lived outside the walls. Then there were the public buildings, of course, which I've mentioned already. Thomas Ivory, the chief exponent of the new Palladian style, is responsible not only for the Georgian terraces in Surrey Street, 
but also for major public buildings, including the Assembly House, the <coughs> original Theatre Royal, the Octagon Chapel, and no longer existing the Tabernacle Methodist Chapel in Bishopgate. And despite disregard for some of the medieval buildings which I've looked at, Norwich in the 1740s did carry out a major programme of refurbishment of the cathedral and bishop's palace, probably not before time. Uh, in the in Cromwellian <coughs> era, there had been <coughs> a proposal to demolish it entirely and use the stone to build a new harbour at, Nor at uh, Yarmouth. Um, there was no similar work on the castle keep, which of course at the time was still used as a prison until after the Georgian era. But the restoration of the castle hill and ditches went ahead in the early 19th century and became, quote, a favourite promenade from which, from the beauty of its views, its central location in a populous city is probably not equalled by any other in the kingdom. Nevertheless, in spite of, <coughs> um, in spite of these new buildings, there was no new Georgian city quarter, as there is, for example, <coughs> in Bath or in Edinburgh or in parts of London. A French visitor put his finger on it in 1784. He wrote that, like all ancient cities, Norwich is badly planned and built. It is not that there are not there are no good or beautiful houses, but a well-built house on a bad site or in a narrow street can never appear more than very moderate. It's not to say that the spirit of improvement was absent. It's reflected in the 1783 directory, which expressed the hope that work could begin following the end of the American War of Independence, which was just finished at that time. It put forward 20 desirable improvements, ranging from street widening and paving schemes, construction of new bridges, to the rearrangement of market stalls, <coughs> and right down to the removal of hanging signs, said to be very dangerous and disagreeable in windy weather. But Norwich actually fell behind at this time, in spite of an urgent need to modernise its urban infrastructure. By the end of the 18th century, at least a hundred other towns in England obtained special Acts of Parliament, establishing ad hoc commissions with powers to levy local rates to provide services such as fresh water supply, street cleansing, as well as lighting, sewage disposal and the policing of streets by a nightly watch. Norwich only got round to following their lead in January 1800, when the mayor summoned a general meeting of inhabitants to consider applying to Parliament for such an act. A plan was eventually drafted out in 1803. <coughs> but the proposals met with determined opposition. People didn't want to pay any more taxes. <coughs> Finance was seen as an important constraint. One proposal put forward was, I, I suppose, what you call a modern, a, a, a Georgian congestion charge, under which people bringing horses and carriages into the city would have to pay 
for the privilege just as they do in central London. But it seems that the quotes um, that the country gentlemen objected to this, so it had to be uh, struck, struck out. Opposition to improvement, as you see, continued up to the last moment. Public meeting in January 1806 um, uh, denounced the draft Norwich Improvement Act as inexpedient and impractical. The sum required would be enormous, far exceeding any possible benefit. A counter, um, a counter petition to the proposed act was signed by 1,600 owners and occupiers of buildings in Norwich simply because they didn't want to pay the extra rates. But nevertheless, the act finally received a royal assent in June 1806 and paving work at last got underway. But even then progress was slow uh, and money ran out when only the principal streets had been paved. Cumbersome administration was also to blame for the slow pace of improvement. The committee supervising the works consisted of no fewer than 55 members including the Dean and President of the Cathedral, the Recorder, 28 members of the Corporation and 24 parochial representatives elected annually. How on earth they agreed on anything, I don't know. <coughs> However, some progress was made outside the scope of the Act. The, a gas company was set up by a further Act of Parliament and the marketplace and surrounding streets were finally illuminated by gas lamps in May 1827. It has to be said 20 years after the streets of London and Man Manchester were similarly illuminated. Individual enterprise also stepped in where municipal action fell short. You may have seen this, um, this uh, plaque, Briggs Lane and Davy Place, which improved access to the marketplace. Both bear the names of publicly minded citizens who financed them. The notorious black spot of London Lane was widened by quotes, the throwing back of the line of shops intended to prevent that frequent concussion of carriages, here's the traffic congestion again, so dangerous to the riders as well as to the foot, pass to the foot passengers. But even so, the Georgians, the Norwich Georgians left behind a city still in need of improvement and modernization, a task which they handed on to the Victorians. From a perspective of nearly 50 years after the end of Georgian era, the historian A.B. Bain wrote in his comprehensive history of Norwich, this heterogeneous body under the Act, he meant the Improvement Act, continued for about 40 years and after spending over £300,000 left Norwich the worst paved town in England and also left a debt of £17,000 which still remains a legacy to this city. <coughs>